Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about pototrochlosis, AKA navicular syndrome, an update, and it's sponsored by Bimita, the makers of children. Okay, so your horse has seemed a little bit off on front in the front. Uh, it could be that you're noticing a slight head nod, a little extra flight time on one diagonal at the trot, some tripping, uh, or tension in your horse, horse's shoulders. You get a lameness exam from your veterinarian, and there's a word you know you don't want to hear, and it's navicular. And I know that I've heard that. Because of that, I'm excited about tonight's format. We are joined by two experts from the University of Pennsylvania's College of Veterinary Medicine's New Bolton Center. We have Dr. Kyla Ortved, who's a board-certified equine surgeon and sports medicine specialist, and Patrick Riley, who is Chief of Farrier Services and a graduate student at London's Royal College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. So just to let the audience know, um, at New Bolton, the two of you work together on these cases because you have both uh, the, the veterinarian and the farrier working side to side. Is that, is that a correct characterization of, of how that works, Dr. Ortbed? Yeah, it's actually a, a really nice setup because um, specifically with navicular syndrome, navicular disease, um, there's a... The, the diagnosis and the treatment and the management goes pretty hand in hand with um, the way that we evaluate them and then having uh, a farrier that is fortunately pretty talented and um, willing to work with a variety of different horses. We get a really nice kind of team environment going where um, we're able to sit down together, we're able to look at the horses together, look at x-rays, look at MRIs together, and then sort of make a plan going forward. Um, so it's it's a really nice environment for both of us, I think. So Dr. Orman, as, um, as a surgeon and a sports medicine specialist, uh, what is your experience working with navicular horses? Is it a significant part of, of what you do? Yeah, I would I would say it's a it's a very significant part of what we do and it, it, the kind of the way we've understood navicular syndrome has changed so dramatically in the past 10 years that um I would say a lot of a lot of horses that we weren't really sure fit into this category um before the advent of the more advanced imaging technology now we really we really do know that they are within the category of navicular syndrome. So I would say that the, we always say that 90% of um, forelimb lameness is originating in the foot, um, which is, is mostly true in a lot of horses. And so the, the, a lot of the foot lamenesses that we do see originate from that site in the foot. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean the navicular bone quite itself. Um, navicular syndrome has been more expanded to involve other structures within that area. So we, we see a lot of that. Uh, we see a lot of it in thoroughbred. We have a large thoroughbred racehorse population, um, a large uh, warm blood sport horse population. We see a lot of it in the warm bloods, um, and then kind of a smaller quarter horse population. But different places I've been in the past with higher quarter horse populations in the hospital, um, it's definitely very overrepresented in that in that population of horses so it's it continues to be and probably is again with our ability to diagnose things a little bit better it's becoming more I would say it's more prevalently diagnosed not necessarily more prevalent but we, we know we know more horses have it because of the way we're able to detect it okay. and Pat can you tell us about your experience um, as a farrier working on navicular cases yeah, well, uh, my background is actually in, in shoeing performance and sport horses, uh, event horses, three-day horses, um, dressage horses. So I have a, a background of working with, with horses that do a lot of, of competing and a lot of, uh, you know, athletic demands. But over the last 20, 25 years, my track practice has, has um, changed, and I've ended up doing more and more therapeutic work and doing more work at places like New Bolton Center. I've been here for the last... 10 or 12 years, 12 years actually. Um, and, you know, to echo Dr. Ortfit's point, it, you know, 
having good outcomes with these, it, it's so much easier when you have vets and farriers who are working together. And I, I really do, uh, at this point, almost all of my work is involving some sort of lameness, uh, some sort of problem, uh, and working with the veterinarians here to try and come up with a good solution for it. Um, I wish we could say as a, as a farrier industry that we were totally caught up and that this was entirely evidence-based and, and you know, scientific approaches, but we still have a lot of, of art that we mix in to fill in the lack, the gaps we have with what we don't know um, from the scientific evidence about how to best shoe a horse. And, and working with the same vets um, every day makes that process a little easier. Well, for tonight's event, we've had uh, record registration. So I wanna jump in and do a quick review of the format of the event, and then we'll go ahead and get started on questions that were submitted during registration. So the, uh, the quick review is that we'll be starting with the questions that people submitted during registration. If you're listening live and you'd like to ask a question or would like clarification on one of our experts' responses, you can, uh, if, if you've joined us, uh, via your internet browser, you can go ahead and send us a message and we'll see how many of those we can get to as well. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Dr. Ortved, the first question is for you and it's from April in Snohomish, Washington. And she wants to know, what are the early signs or symptoms that occur in a horse with navicular and can it be prevented? Um, those, those are both great questions. Um, so as far as the early signs or symptoms, uh, if you're lucky, the early signs or symptoms are going to be a, a mild lameness. Um, and, and often navicular syndrome occurs bilaterally, so it affects both the left and the right front. Um, and, I'll, and I'll talk mostly about the, about the front limbs just because it's very rare in the highlands. It can occur, but it's pretty rare. Um, so you may have with the bilateral nature of, of the syndrome, you may have one, one leg that's worse than the other, and that's the one that the horse is limping on. Or you may just notice that the horse in general has a bit of a shorter stride, um, an unwillingness to land off jumps, um, an unwillingness to work in general. And, and some horses will kind of demonstrate a, that response in an exaggerated fashion when they're on hard ground. Um, so out on, you know, out walking on the road, on the pavement, that sort of thing. So the, if you're lucky, you get the early signs of lameness and that's sort of when you can intervene. And, and it, especially if you notice that something's wrong, it gives you a nice opportunity to intervene. Unfortunately, some horses will present with a more severe form of lameness right off the bat. And that's a little bit, um, can be a little bit more um, upsetting to the owner and, and the trainer because it's, it's acute and it's uh, pretty noticeable and pretty severe. So it, it can be a wide variety, but the vast majority of horses present with some degree of lameness. Um, the other thing that is somewhat consistent, horses will often be more lame on the affected limb when that limb is on the inside of the circle. Um, so that's often a telltale sign. The other part of the question is, can it be prevented? And that's Kind of the million dollar question. Um, I wish that I could say yes, that it could be prevented. Uh, it, at least with our current understanding of it, it's the it's really a degenerative condition. It's an an overuse uh, injury, and I, not in the sense that we are overusing horses, but just sort of a wear and tear, strain injury, um, like humans are prone to in their tendons and joints. Um, and so the the prevention of it could we could we make our horses not be athletic at all and that would prevent it? That's, that's probably true. But um, given the jobs they do, it's, it's definitely a difficult thing to prevent. I think the things that you can focus on are, are making sure that the horses, working with the horses own confirmation to make sure that it's as biomechanically favorable as it could possibly be, um, making sure that the feet are always in good condition, having excellent farrier care, um, and and just really paying attention to the horse's comfort level um, as you're as you're working it would be the would be the things that you could sort of prevent it try to prevent any development um, in general. So we have had a, we've had a question come in from our live audience, Dr. Ortved, that uh, 
dovetails in nicely with the our next question uh, from our registered questions. Dan says, given the number of structures that can cause pain in the foot, is it finally time to kill the term navicular syndrome? So our next question is from Gloria in Massachusetts, and she wanted to know, is there a difference between navicular syndrome and navicular disease? And I was just going to add to that, that I've been practicing saying pototrochlosis all week so that I wouldn't trip yeah. over it today in the event, because that is a term that we're hearing as well as caudal heel pain. Um, I, are there yeah. pototrochlitis? trochoelitis, <laughs> a different form of that poto uh, Latin root. So what's going on? What's our terminology? What does it all mean? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult, we're in a difficult spot right now because it's definitely, a, the terminology has changed pretty significantly and that all ties into how I mentioned in the past 10 to 15 years, we understand this, this entire entity a lot better. So it used to be a navicular disease sort of grabbed everything that um, was identified in a horse that had foot pain that was that that blocked traditionally blocked to the foot um, so radiographs or x-rays can identify issues in the navicular bone itself but but really can't identify any other pathology or any other injury in that area we went to caudal heel pain because it was a little bit more encompassing. Um, the block, the low block that we do to the foot blocks out the back of the heel, um, which is where the navicular bone sits. But again, it's where a lot of other structures sit. Um, so caudal heel pain sort of it brought, brought all those structures into play. More recently, um, people have been using the, the term pototrochleosis um, or pototrochleitis or pototrochlear syndrome. Um, and and really, it, it, you you mentioned it earlier. It's the Latin root for for describing the the foot and the apparatus, it, the pototrochlear apparatus in the foot. Um, and that is is more of a, a proper or all encompassing medical term for the condition. Navicular syndrome, navicular disease is still is still considered an acceptable form of communication between people to kind of describe what's going on. Okay. Uh, but the pototrochleosis sort of does a better job of um, including all the other things. And so when I say including all the other things, um, the navicular bone itself is, can absolutely be the, the, the sole culprit and can have significant degeneration in the bone. And that's what we can absolutely <clears throat> see on x-rays. The other structures that are play a huge role in this in this area is the deep digital flexor tendon comes down the back of the leg and wraps around the back of the navicular bone and inserts on the coffin bone. The navicular bone is also supported by the impar ligament that comes off the bottom of it and attaches to the coffin bone. We have um, the navicular bursa that sits between the navicular bone and the deep digital flexor tendon. We have ligaments that support the navicular bone on either side, the uh, collateral ligaments of the navicular bone. And then the navicular bone itself has cartilage on both sides. It, it, it's part of the coffin joint. And then on the other side, on its backside, it has cartilage that um, where the deep digital flexor tendon runs. So I mentioned that disease can occur in the, in the bone itself and it can degenerate from the wear and tear likely of the deep digital flexor tendon and the pressure it puts on it. But we can also get injuries to the deep digital flexor tendon itself, which is quite common. And we can get injuries to all those other structures I mentioned, the impar ligament, the collateral ligaments of the navicular bone, the coffin joint itself. Um, so the navicular bursa can just be inflamed. All of those things can happen individually or they can happen together. And that's sort of where that whole pototrochleosis uh, comes into play as far as capturing all of the different things that could possibly occur. Okay. And so did that original use of the word navicular just have to do with that's what we could see in radiographs before we had other imaging modalities? Yeah, exactly. So we used to, and radiographs are, are our go-to, our first go-to. 
Um, they give us a lot of information on bone. Unfortunately, they don't give us any information on the soft tissues or the cartilage. So you can have a significant pro problem in the foot, and we know that we have a significant problem because um, because we the horse is lame and it blocks to the foot, but the x-rays can, in a lot of cases, be normal. So with the advent of MRI um, and the, the more widespread use, we've that's where that greater understanding of this entire syndrome has come from because we were able to image all of the soft tissues, the joints, the cartilage in some cases. So we, we can see these horses that we used to say, oh, you definitely have navicular disease. Your x-rays just aren't so bad. Now we're looking at it and we're saying, oh, those horses that we thought had navicular, quote unquote, navicular disease actually have a tear in their deep digital flexor tendon that we never appreciated before we had MRI. So MRI has had a huge role in our understanding of this syndrome and and definitely in our treatment, um, our targeted treatment of the syndrome. So it's 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 sort of revolutionized um phototrochleosis or navicular syndrome or whatever you wanna whatever you wanna um call it, but it's it's played a huge role in that. Okay. And so we've had some live questions roll in as you're answering, Dr. Ortved. Uh, Ginny in the live audience wants to know, how do you narrow down what the problem is? I think you've kind of, you've answered that a bit with the blocking and then you know, the, yeah. and moving to the MRI. Uh, we also have Meta who wants to know, given the cost, how critical is MRI to the diagnosis? So can you address both of those? Yeah. Um, so the as far as the diagnosis of it, by far and away the first step in the diagnosis, at least for me, is to block the horse. So I see a lame horse um, and I almost always will go to blocking first to identify the actual source of pain. And I think that's, for me, it's, at least it's really key because I see a lot of horses that um, that are lame and I think they have one thing because they kind of have a characteristic gait, but it turns out to be something else. So blocking them to, to really make sure that you um, know, you identify the area that's causing the lameness is key. Once I've done that, um, and I usually do that with a nerve block to the foot, once I've done that, uh, we do, I'll generally start with x-rays. Uh, I'll take some x-rays and, and see how things look. If there's, if there's significant change to the navicular bone on x-rays, you have a very solid answer, um, and you have a diagnosis, there may be other things going on concurrently, but it, you can definitely say that this horse has severe navicular disease and is, you know, potentially un, it doesn't have a very good prognosis for further athleticism. So that may be the end, end stage of the diagnostics. Um, or you could say this horse has mild to moderate changes in its navicular bone. Um, and instead of doing more imaging, we could try to do some treatments, some therapeutic shoeing, some anti-inflammatories, et cetera, and see if the horse responds to that. Where the MRI comes into play, it's it certainly, um, I think it was the question from Meta, it, it definitely is, it's an expense. Um, and depending on where you're at and, and the unit you're using, it can be a significant expense. Um, and then there's the consideration of some horses have to go under general anesthesia for it. Um, some horses can do it standing, but there's that consideration of having the horse hospitalized for it. It is, there's been some recent data coming out. Um, there was a series of cases published out of Colorado State University that show significantly better outcomes in horses with foot lameness when they have earlier MRI than horses that wait to have an MRI. And so I would say I don't take it, you know, I'm not taking it lightly that it's expensive. And I think that plays a huge role in the decision making. I think if the finances are there to support the use of an MRI, the sooner the, the, sooner the better, um, especially if you're questioning the diagnosis, because as I mentioned earlier, that it allows a, a more clear understanding of what's actually going on in the foot and allows you to target your treatment more appropriately so that you're you know you're not spending several months trying to sort out what what exactly is going to work or not work 
so that's how, I guess that that's how I would um, how I would approach it with my own horse. If I had the money, I would I would spend on I would do an MRI sooner rather than later. Um, especially you know if I if I've been struggling with some front limb lameness for a couple a couple of months, I would definitely step in and do an do an MRI. Okay. So Pat, um, Dr. Orbit has ex- explained how uh, a veterinarian goes about diagnosing navicular, but uh, you as a farrier and I as a horse owner with friends who are horse owners know that often a horse is off a little bit and the horse owner's first um, instinct is to call their farrier. So Pat, what is the farrier's role in the diagnosis and the that the first initial call from the horse owner and then following through to creating the treatment plan with the vet? Well, I, I, I actually think I think we need to have a lot better interactions uh, between the farrier and veterinary communities. And I think, um, as you say, a lot of people come to the farriers first, but a lot of the things that we see, a lot of the choices that we have um, without a diagnosis, we can actually take a situation instead of making it better, we can have the exact opposite outcome. And, and there are times that, you know, a little bit of guesswork is indicated, but or, or trying something different to see if we get a result. But as a, you know, as a, for instance, if I, if I put a bar shoe on a horse to, you know, that's, that's got a little bit of lameness issues, I'm going to change the distribution of force on that foot and it might make the horse better, but equally it could make the horse worse. Right. And there, that's, that's a conversation that I have with my clients. Again, I'm very fortunate because I only have to send them, you know, a hundred feet down the, down the corridor to, to find somebody, but it's, you know, and I have vets that I work with very comfortably and, you know, on a regular basis, but I do think that's the, uh, that would always be my first answer is to try and refer somebody, you know, I'm a better farrier when I have a diagnosis. Uh, as a farrier, my goal is to take whatever Dr. Orfid, whatever structures Dr. Orfid identifies as, as being pathologic and try and take some force off of those particular structures. And without a diagnosis, I'm, I really am operating in the dark. And that's, uh, that, sometimes it works, but it's not ideal. Uh, Our next question uh, was from Evelyn via email, and it's for Dr. Ortved. And Evelyn wants to know what the difference is between navicular syndrome and laminitis and founder. Another excellent question, Um, because this is a confusing confusing kind of question that a lot of people come up with, because the terms get used can get used interchangeably depending on um, the horse. So navicular syndrome, I, I think we've covered as far as it's, a degenerative condition um, involving the area of the navicular bone and its um, associated soft tissues, uh, so more of a wear and tear injury. Laminitis and founder can also be used, uh, can actually be used interchangeably in a way. Um, they, they both refer to sort of the same condition, um, just different variations of it. So laminitis is the term laminitis um, just essentially means inflammation of the lamina in the foot. And the lamina are um, the, all the very small soft tissues that hold the coffin bone within the hoof capsule. So they support, literally support the horse's entire weight in the hoof capsule. Um, when we get inflammation of that during laminitis, the horses in, in the early stages will appear to be very foot sore, um, have it would be very reluctant to walk, um, may just stand on one place in the stall. Um, those horses, the main causes of laminitis are, um, we see a lot of laminitis with uh, endocrinology um, disturbances, so equine metabolic syndrome, um, insulin dysregulation, uh, Cushing's disease, all of those sort of fit into a cause of laminitis. We also see laminitis in horses that are experience any any sort of um, septic shock so in in um, severe colic um, or colitis horses with diarrhea will see laminitis Um, and then we also see laminitis in horses that are forced to bear a lot of weight on one limb over the other so if a horse has an injury in one leg they're susceptible to laminitis in the other leg so that's laminitis is the breakdown of the attachment between the coffin bone and 
um, and the hoof capsule. Founder um, refers to when the horse, when the when the coffin bone actually sinks through the hoof capsule. So the the kind of the two things we look for in laminitis are the coffin bone sits in a very normal position in the foot. Um, it's parallel to the hoof capsule. We see rotation where the coffin bone will, due to the inflammation and the damage, will start to release on the on the top of the on the top of the coffin bone and will start to rotate and point towards the ground. And then we also see complete breakdown of the attachments and the, the coffin bone actually sinks through the hoof capsule and can come out the bottom. Um, so founder and laminitis are are essentially referring to the same thing, where it's Founder is a little bit more of the severe form of laminitis where the foot comes, comes, sinks down through the hoof capsule. We've had several questions roll in from our live audience. Uh, Dr. Ortved, uh, we have um, Oscar and um, Cindy are asking if navicular syndrome is genetic or breed specific. Uh, Dr. Ortved? So it's um, it's definitely overrepresented in certain breeds. So the the breeds that we see it very um, very commonly in are quarter horses by far. Um, so quarter horses, thoroughbreds, warm bloods um, would be the the big three. It's not something that's very readily diagnosed. Let's say um, in ponies. Um, in Arabs, a lot of the other breeds. So I'd say the big three are warm bloods, quarter horses, and thoroughbreds. Um, is there a genetic component? Some, that's a question we don't know the, the complete answer to. So it seems to be, there seems to be some heritability. There's been one study showing some heritability in warm bloods, um, but it is a very calm, it's, it's, it, the genetic component of it is very complex. So it's not a simple, if you have a mare that has navicular syndrome, the foal will have navicular syndrome. It won't, it, it's not a simple um, trait that gets passed down. It's more of a complex trait. And it's probably more associated with the heritability of the conformation of the horse. Because although it's not fully elucidated, we think that some conformations will lead to navicular syndrome more than others. Um, so it, it, it's, it's not, I think there's a lot we, we still don't know about navicular syndrome, but my guess would be even, even without the studies that have yet to be done, it's probably not, heritability of it, that probably doesn't play a huge role. Uh, Pat, our next question is for you. It's from George in Indiana, and George wants to know if there's a causal relationship between metal shoes and navicular syndrome. For example, does it have to do with blood supply, development of the soft tissues, et cetera, when wearing a metal shoe? Oh, boy, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're answering that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, part of the hard part, I alluded to this, earlier, there's so much in the farrier world and what we do that is not entirely understood by science. We can't, you know, when we talk about changes in, uh, from one shoe to another uh, on blood supply or growth of the foot, those are really hard things to prove. And to my knowledge, there is no, you know, evidence that, that we could say for or against changing in the blood supply to the foot by virtue of shoeing. Um, there are a couple of papers out there that, that discuss uh, this one paper that found that just leaving a horse barefoot took 14% of the force off the deep digital flexor tendons that applies to the navicular bone. But they couldn't even really fully explain why that occurred. So that's, I mean, I, I think you could argue that, that, um, that there's a place for barefoot, you know, management of some horses with, with uh, navicular syndrome or navicular disease. Um, but there are also a lot of horses that respond really well to shoot. So this is where the art of what we do comes in, and we're left trying to find what works for a specific animal. And a lot of horses, you know, just uh, for lots of reasons, just the massive foot, just don't do as well barefoot as, as they do shod. And other horses, you know, do very well barefoot and better shod, barefoot than they do shod. So it really becomes a case-by-case -case basis. Oh. Uh, I have four horses, and they're in um, the range from barefoot for 15 years to um, 
shoes that are much more expensive than I'd ever spend on a pair of shoes for myself <laughs> every four or five weeks. So, you know, my wife is my wife is a dressage rider. We've had three upper level horses that that we've had over the years. One competed through upper levels barefoot. One competed in nail-on shoes, and now we have one that's competing in glue-on shoes. So, I'm right there with you. We have a mm-hmm. we have a wide range. It's, it's whatever works for each individual horse. That's uh, our next question is for you, Pat. It's from Ray in Washington, and Ray wants to know how can current radiographs or imaging help the farrier uh, shoe a navicular horse? Um, oh, that's another good question. I think I think in terms of um, how about this? There's one word that you're not allowed to use as it applies to shoeing in my in my farrier shop, and that's that's the word balance, because that suggests that we we either know exactly what we're doing, and we don't. Um, and the second part of that is that things are going to stay where we put them. And again, they don't. Horses' feet have this rather annoying tendency of growing, and that creates a bit of a problem from a mechanical perspective. I think radiographs can be really useful uh, in identifying where the internal structures are, and especially with regard to identifying distortion of the hoof capsule. Um, I think sometimes feet have a tendency, farriers have a tendency to focus on the outside of the foot, the hoof capsule, and we can fit shoes to distortion and not necessarily factor in things like bony alignment and the position of the shoe relative to the center of articulation of the coffin joint. So radiographs can be really useful, but I also have to temper that with, a, you know, it's not like we haven't a known fixed point that we can radiographically identify that says this is where this shoe needs to be in in an ideal way for this horse. So I I think, again, every situation, every farrier's experience is a little bit different, but it's not like we have a, it's not like the answer to having perfect shoe placement lies in, in having more radiographs available. I hope that makes sense. It does. Um, we have uh, questions coming in from our live audience. Dr. Ortbed, I'm going to give this one to you. Uh, Jason and Virginia have both asked about cause and prevention. Does hard work uh, and placement of pressure on the feet, improper shoeing and trimming, working on hard ground, um, do those all contribute to navicular syndrome? And if so, can we adjust those factors to help prevent or reduce the clinical signs of the disease? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the hard thing, and I was sort of alluding to this earlier, the hard thing with trying to completely prevent the disease is that it it is, a, it is something that comes out of horses being athletes. Um, and a lot of our you know, a lot of our pleasure from in the equine world does come from them being athletic. And I think, and I truly believe that a lot of horses themselves enjoy being athletes um, and, and enjoy having a job. So, you know, it, 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 I think you can absolutely take steps to limit the, the impact on the foot and the concussive forces on the foot. So doing things like avoiding riding on really hard ground, um, can help protect the foot and not just from navicular disease, but, um, sole bruising, um, laminitis, things like that. Riding them on, uh, increasing the concussive forces on the foot can definitely, um, increase the rate of wear and tear on the foot, including on the navicular bone. Um, and absolutely having, good good shoeing and trimming is key you see a lot of horses um with you know excessively long toes and and when they break over so when they when they take that step and they break over their toe they're putting even more pressure on the deep digital flexor tendon that hits the back of the navicular bone so that can cause a lot of damage um so those sort of maintenance housekeeping um components to to the foot are, are really important. I don't believe that there's a way that we can completely avoid navicular syndrome. I hope that with our better diagnostics um, and our better understanding of it, it's something that we can try to try to limit um, its its onset and then have a better way to detect it early on, so that we can we can intervene when things first start before they get bad. Um, and I say that in the sense that 
there are navicular syndrome or, or polytrochlosis is it's a wide range of uh, injuries and it's also a wide spectrum within those injuries. So you can have a horse that has a small tear in its deep digital flexor tendon that has a, a fairly you know has a has a fairly good shot of returning to athletic function, or a horse that has a very large tear when it's diagnosed and and that has a you know that horse has a very poor prognosis. And the same we see, especially um, going back to the MRI, we see some horses that have just some, you know, just some bone bruising in the navicular bone. Um, on x-rays, the bone looks normal, but we know the horse um, does block to that part of the foot. And then when we do the MRI, there's some evidence of bone bruising or, or kind of internal damage to the bone. And that's really the start kind of the, the first thing that we see or the start of the syndrome so if you can take if you can identify that horse when that starts to happen and and give it some time off give it some rest uh, potentially some anti-inflammatories other um, interventions you may prevent the further progression of the disease um, before it kind of gets to a point where you're not going to be able to to do anything about it uh, we have a follow-up question, Dr. Ortved, from Pig in our live audience, um, and I'm not sure if you have this information because I know you're working on the uh, clinical side and not the billing side, but she'd like to know okay. <laughs> what, what the cost of uh, an MRI is, and I know that would also vary by region and whether it's a standing MRI or a yeah. MRI. Yeah, that's a so I can speak for the northeast because um, I've been in several a couple clinics um, in the northeast and and know uh, I'm fairly aware of a couple clinics in the northeast. Um, so for an MRI and and the standing versus general anesthesia often won't make a huge difference, but I would say anywhere a standing MRI may be around twenty five hundred for a foot. Um, uh, up to about 3,500 for uh, MRI under general anesthesia, um, and that often includes the foot and the pastern region, and often includes the other foot as a comparison. Um, so you get you kind of get several different images. So it's 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 certainly an investment. It, I, you know, absolutely an investment, um, and needs to the decision to do that needs to be made carefully, considering. Um, considering the horse and the financial uh, situation that's present. Pat, our next question is for you, and it's from John in North Forks, California. And he, he wants to know, can navicular syndrome improve with proper shoeing? And Dr. Ortved has touched on that. Can you share with us some of the options farriers have for uh, shoeing these horses? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, the easy answer is yes, it can. I think while navicular disease itself is is generally a, a chronic uh, condition that tends to worsen over time. Navicular syndrome and some of the uh, some of the diseases of the prototrochlear apparatus. I mean, the deep digital flex tendon, uh, the supporting structures of the navicular bone. We have a profound ability to take force off of those areas. Um, you know, things like using heel elevation, wedge pads. Um, they can have a pretty marked effect at taking force off of that area which in theory is going to give it a little bit of time and, 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 you know, a little bit of rest, allow those structures to heal. Yeah, we do have, uh, there are not a lot of great published accounts of, of the success rates of different treatments. Um, that's, you know, heel wedges would be one excellent way of taking some strain off the deep flexor tendon as it applies to the navicular bone. Uh, another thought process, uh, egg bar shoes uh, or some sort of bar shoes can particularly be helpful in some sort of deep footing. Right, so if we increase the amount of surface area from the shoe on the back half of the foot, when a horse puts its foot down in some sort of soft arena that it might be working in, it creates a bit of a snowshoe effect, so the heels don't sink the Once they found that that you know the right combination of horse and and pads, you or excuse me, a footing, you would create a four or five degree lift, which is going to take a, a significant amount of force off of the deep digital flexor tendon. Uh, so there are things that we can definitely do to manipulate the forces on the foot. Uh, and, and I'll kind of say going back to, there is a downside to using both heel wedges and things like bar shoes. All the things that we're doing that might be taking force off of the deep digital flexor tendon um, 
we might exacerbate some other pathologies with the same treatments. So in other words, if I put a heel elevation on your on your foot, you know, horse that, that's sore in its foot, but the cause is actually a bruised heel, the wedge pass or the, the bar shoe that we're putting on there, rather than protecting it, might actually be concentrating more force on the on a structure that's that's causing pain. And that's where a diagnosis comes in and is really, really helpful for me in terms of trying to design, you know, some sort of orthotic or some sort of uh, um, way of maintaining a foot. Um, we are starting to get some questions rolling in about bisphosphonate use to treat navicular horses. So Dr. Ortbed, I'm going to return to our registration questions. We can frame this a little bit and then we'll jump okay. into some questions from uh, the audience. It's very busy right now with questions coming in. Pat, hold on tight because I have questions for you right. regarding uh, barefoot trimming of navicular horses. Okay, so Dr. Ortbed, um, we have a question from Marcy in Massachusetts who wants to know do bisphosphonates in horses work the same as they do in human by stopping osteoclast production uh, opposed to just, quote, regrowing navicular bones? So can you explain to everyone who's listening uh, briefly what a bisphosphonate is and how it can be used to manage navicular cases? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so bisphosphonates, um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of them actually not from the equine world, but from the human medicine world. Um, so they are used, they came out of the human medicine world. They're used for, um, several different bone disorders where, um, there's increased breakdown of bone. So osteoporosis, um, bone metastasis, um, and other kind of bone fragility disorders. And the way that bisphosphonate, bisphosphonates work is that they interfere, they either, um, completely stop or they interfere with the activity of osteoclasts. So osteoclasts are the bone, the cells in bone that break down bone. Um, they, they, they secrete enzymes that break down the mineral material that makes up bone. The other main cell in bone, um, another, the one of the other main cells is an osteoblast, and the osteoblast is responsible for making new bone material. And so the turnover, turnover of bone is a very natural, um, constantly occurring um, process that occurs in the body. Uh, so it, it's very common that some, some areas of bone will be broken down and, and new areas of bone will be made. So that's a normal process. Um, and, and in some disorders, that process seems to get disrupted and we get increased uh, breakdown of bone without appropriate new bone being formed. And that is something that we see in the, in the navicular bone, in, in navicular syndrome, if the bone itself is actually one of the elements that's affected, we'll see resorption of the bone or breakdown of the bone um, that's inappropriate, and it, and it's in response to the things we've been talking about, the the impact and the uh, forces the deep digital flexor tendon on it. Um, so the kind of a degenerative process that that helps break down the bone. The purpose of the bisphosphonate is to try to limit um, osteoclast activity um, and allow osteoblasts to to lay down bone without having the bone having to catch up to the bone that's already being broken down. Um, there, there is some uh, still unknown mechanism in addition to, to the bisphosphonates decreasing osteoclast activity. They also seem to have a separate um, pain relieving effect or an analgesic effect um, that may be through opioid receptors. It's still, like I said, it's still unknown, but the combination is the combination that we see the effect is um, some pain relief separate to the de decreased osteoclast activity and then decreased osteoclast activity as well. Um, so they're used in that the, the, the bisphosphonates we have available in equine medicine, there's many, many more in human medicine, but the ones we have available in equine medicine are licensed for use for navicular syndrome and have been shown to in improve outcomes when they're used in navicular syndrome. Um, and then there have been some studies showing 
improved outcomes in hawk in horses with hawk arthritis. Um, it's not they're not licensed for use with hawk arthritis, um, but there have been studies showing improvement in those horses as well. And for the horse owners listening, those two uh, bisphosphonates that are approved by the FDA for navicular syndrome in horses are Tildren and Osphos. So that might just help them understand yeah. um, what what we're talking about, because lots of times uh, when you're in the vet clinic, you're talking in brand names. So just, just to help everyone yeah. out there out. Um, those are what we were talking about. Susan is in the live audience and she wants to know, how do I know the bisphosphonates are working? Uh, a million, another million dollar question. It's, it's hard. It, you won't, you won't know if they're working, if they're truly working. And, and I think part of that is um, with this sort of diagnosis, uh, we, we often will do a whole lot of things at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, a horse will all of a sudden, we're going to, sh- we're going to therapeutically shoe it. We may inject the bursa or the coffin joint with, um, with something. We'll put the horse on a, not, uh, an anti-inflammatory. So a non-steroidal, um, we will potentially change its work. We'll give it a bisphosphonate. So there's a whole lot of things done at once, um, that, so it's often really hard to know what the important thing was, or was it just a mixture of, of everything? So there's a lot of people that, that have good success with bisphosphonates and feel like they do improve outcomes. So I think there's definitely some, some truth there with navicular syndrome, but I think it's hard to know, um, to truly know without, you know, without actually looking at the navicular bone, um, outside of the body, it would be very hard to know if it's, if it's doing, um, if it's actually active in your horse or if it's not. Um, we're down to about 15 minutes left uh, in our broadcast tonight. Um, Dr. Ortved, we have um, a question from Susan in Madison, Wisconsin about bisphosphonates. She said, how do you determine when it's time to add them to your treatment of the horse? Is it something you do right off the bat to get ahead of the game, or is it something that you bring in later after you've adjusted shoeing and started the horse maybe on an NSAID like Equiox to help manage that? So I generally, um, I generally decide on level of therapy based on degree of disease. So if I see a horse that's really mildly affected, um, I'll often start with therapeutic shoeing alone. Um, and then sort of the, I, the next, the things that I choose are sort of the least invasive to the most invasive. So everything from just therapeutic shoeing up to um, medications to joint injections to navicular bursa injections to um, some horses, especially horses with deep digital flexor tendons will actually take the surgery for those. Um, So I guess I always try to make decisions based on um, trying to weigh the risks and the benefits. so using a non-steroidal, you have to weigh the risk and benefit. If it's, if it's making the horse significantly more comfortable than that, then that's outweighing the risks, the side effects of, um, of long-term butte use or Equiox use. With the bisphosphonate, they, although they have, you know, they, they've been shown to have good activity for navicular horses, um, they do have side effects. So the, they will act on all osteoclasts in the body, not just the ones in the navicular bone. Um, so they're decreasing that you, the, the animal's normal ability to turn bone over, which is a normal process that the body needs. Um, the other thing with bisphosphonates is that they, they are very long-lasting. So um, at least in, in the human bisphosphonates, they can last up to 10, their activity can be up to 10 years. Um, in in bone so it's it's something to i think it's just something to consider it's it's not like all medications we give it's not a totally benign medication so we need to um i i try to i guess going back to that stepwise approach i use the least invasive thing and then but there's certainly horses that i'll i'll evaluate for the first time and i'll give them a bisphosphonate immediately just because 
when I look at the their navicular bone, it looks like the degeneration is pretty, you know, moderate severe, and I think that it would benefit them, and I think that that benefit outweighs the risk. So, uh, Pat, as promised, I have a follow-up uh, from George and our live audience. Um, going back to the, the barefoot uh, navicular horses, George wants to know how should farriers trim a barefoot horse to prevent reduce navicular syndrome clinical signs? Uh, yeah, that's a real tough one. Uh, I think the best answer I can give you is frequently. I think that's one of the big things that, you know, uh, if I'm looking at shoes or barefoot, growth is, is problematic. Uh, there was one study that found that over an eight-week shoeing interval, the force on the deep flexor tendon uh, required to initiate breakover increased by 11%. Right? Now, that's, that's a fairly sizable amount if we're trying to, you know, to uh, uh, take pressure off of that area. And it's something that we, as, as either farriers or trimmers or horse owners, have a direct um, ability to influence. Right? So, you know, if you have a horse that's going through a particularly tough time, I think having a you know, if it's barefoot, trim it every every week or every other week. If it's, you know, shod, see how frequently you think you can get away with, with reshoeing it without, you know, disturbing the foot too much and, and um, causing problems. But regular care really does make a difference, you know, on the mechanics of the regions that, that we're talking about tonight. I mean, on the, on the structures that we're trying to protect. And Pat, we had a question from Rachel in Boulder, Colorado. Rachel has a navicular horse that seems most comfortable in reverse shoes. Are there any negative long-term effects to using a reverse shoe? So can you explain to us a little bit what a reverse shoe is and yeah. why that might be helping her horse? So the, the reverse shoe, literally it is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's just nailing a shoe on or gluing a shoe on backwards um, so that the heels are at the front of the foot. And it's essentially the, the farrier, uh, the farrier term for that is an open-toed egg bar shoe, which I guess is just all a question of how you look at it. Um, the concept, is similar to a bar shoe, is that in certain footings, the increased surface area over the back part of the foot is going to create a little bit of flotation, which is going to cause the, a little bit of heel elevation when the horse is working in a deformable footing, like an arena, like some sort of uh, um, you know, sand or, or even felt arenas. Um, the open toe at the front of the foot has, the way those, the shoes tend to fit the foot, you're almost naturally moving the breakover point back, which allows the foot, at least in theory, to break over with less force on the deep digital flexor tendon and therefore on the navicular bone. So those are all you know, things that would mechanically make a lot of sense. And if it's working for your horse, I wouldn't worry about the possible downsides of it because it, it's if it's working, it's working. That's that's my standard of how I know if we're going down the right direction. You know, in theory, maybe you could worry that the toe is not being as protected as much as it as it could be, and could that cause a problem potentially? But you know, take what's working, and and I'd worry about you know the uh, worry about problems when and if they should arise. But I wouldn't. I would focus on if it's working for your horse. I would keep going with. So, Pat, if someone is looking for a farrier to shoe their horse that's navicular or to shoe the horse that isn't that even isn't navicular yet, um, right. what, what recommendations do you have for them to find a qualified farrier who is going I, to... I honestly, I, I actually answered this question whether you're looking for a farrier or a vet. There are so many ideas of hoof care that if you're looking for a farrier, I would ask your vet for some... Somebody at, at the very least, you're going to have a vet and a farrier that are working and comfortable working with each other. And that's not always the case. We have some wildly you know, divergent opinions about how feet should be cared for from both farriers and veterinarians. And at least if you don't have two you know, professions who are starting out with opposing views, I, I think your chances of success go up a lot. So I, you know, if you're looking for a new vet, I always tell people, ask your farrier for suggestions. And if you're looking for a new farrier, my comment is, ask your vet for suggestions and see, you know, who they've worked well with in the past. Good, good advice there. Um, Dr. Orved, we have some questions that have come in from our live audience. Uh, uh, Patricia and 
Joanne wants to know whether therapies such as pulse magnetic therapy or cold laser therapy are useful in managing horses with navicular. So I, it, it, that's a question we don't have an answer to. Um, unfortunately, my inclination would be that those things are of limited use in navicular syndrome by by way that most things that are are that we consider to be a part of the navicular syndrome are actually within the hoof capsule um so pretty deep within the hoof capsule so our ability to um use cold laser or um pulse magnetic fields in that area is really limited unfortunately um it's the same reason we have difficulty uh diagnosing deep digital flexor tear tendon uh pairs the deep digital flexor tendon in that area with an ultrasound. We simply can't see that far down. Um, so I would, my, my inclination would be say that it's, that they're of limited use just because of their anatomic location. That being said, if you have a deep flexor tendon tear that's traveling a little bit higher up into the, pa the low pastern region, that would be something that's a little bit more amenable to some of those therapies. Um, but again, it's it's a field of research that is hasn't been terribly explored yet. So I think there's definitely some quite a few unanswered questions. Okay. Um, our next question is uh, for Pat, and it's from Vernon in Ontario, Canada. And Vernon wants to know what is your favorite way to manage the long toe low crushed heel problem. So can you briefly explain how that can be associated with navicular and then how you manage those? I have one, so I'm looking forward to your yeah, answer. The, again, there's a, there's a great part of that question, which is, uh, first of all, identify it. Um, horses' feet don't necessarily grow symmetrically. So if I, if I leave a horse at, say, 55 degrees when I leave the barn, six weeks, eight weeks from now, it's likely that that angle is going to be at least five degrees lower. And some horses with force, place more force on the back half of the foot. They seem to, um, the horn tubules fold over and they will crush, and they have more weight on the back half of the foot. The toe then grows in a more horizontal plane, and the angle of the foot gets even lower over time. Um, we can refer to those as, as well, here's a whole other webinar, crushed heels or <laughs> underrun heels. There's a whole other you know, terminology problem in here, but the end result is that it's hard to maintain the same phalangeal alignment, the same alignment of the pastern and the hoof capsule throughout the shoeing cycle. It just, it changes too much. So unfortunately, I haven't found anything, nor have I seen anybody else who has the ability to fix that. The real key in the question is how do you manage it? Mm -hmm. And everybody has different, you know, opinions on that. Some people, I'm not opposed to the use of wedge pads. Some farriers really dislike them with the idea that it's going to put more compressive forces and crush the heels more. But it might depend on, you know, these are all thought to contribute to increased force on the deep digital flexor tendon, increased um, moment arms on the, on the navicular bone, and, and increased pathology right there. Some horses never develop those as problems, and some horses end up, you know, there are all kinds of different success rates with different shoeing ideas, which probably tells you that there's not one right way to manage it. A lot of it may have to do with the job that the horses are doing and the surfaces that they're working on. So that's, uh, there are a lot of variables that are outside of, uh, you know, what you would see just looking at the foot, but the whole horse's lifestyle and job are going to influence that a lot. Um, I, I personally really do like to manipulate the breakover point and, and back up the toe. I like to fit a long heel on the back of the, of the horse, but not every job is, is uh, equine athletic event is, is conducive to having a lot of support out the back half of the foot. So, uh, I think uh, we have time for one one more question, and I'm going to sneak it in here, Dr. Ortved. Um, Bridget in our live audience wants to know the difference between uh, navicular cyst and navicular changes, and how you would recommend managing a navicular cyst. So navicular cyst can encompass, again, unfortunately, a, a kind of a wide spectrum of change. Navicular cysts are changes in the bone, cyst-like structures in the bone that we see and we often look for them on an x-ray 
as a sign that the bone um, it has some degeneration in it. So it, it, navicular cysts are basically a sign of navicular bone damage and, and fit into the category of navicular syndrome. So your your management would be quite similar, dependent, but it really depends on the the size of the cyst. There are some cystic changes we see on x-ray that are pretty severe, um, and that would indicate to you that this is a severe case of navicular disease or navicular syndrome, and it's going to be quite challenging to treat. Um, and then, you know, the, you, the milder changes, the, the milder cysts, then you, you would essentially treat it like you would any other um, horse with navicular syndrome. Well, that unfortunately is all the time that we have for tonight. I want to let the live audience know that our web producer, Jennifer, has posted a um, two resource articles. One is a fact sheet on MRI, if you were listening for the MRI portion and want some clarity on what MRI is and the different types of MRI that you might be looking at, um, you can take a look at that uh, fact sheet. Uh, she also has listed our top 10 navicular syndrome resources on thehorse.com. So you can go ahead and click through those and check those out. Um, I want to go ahead and thank Dr. Ortfid and Patrick for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having us and thank you for the great questions. Yeah, thanks a lot. Those were excellent questions. It was great to be here. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. I wish we had um, weekly sessions because I think there, there's yeah. a, a, a lot on this particular topic that, that we could cover. Um, I also want to thank our I also want to thank our sponsor, Rymeda, the makers of Tildren, and everyone who submitted questions and listened live. Please join us next month. We're changing things up a little bit in December. We're going to be doing a webcast with a presentation on equine joint disease in um, place of Ask the Horse Live. Ask the Horse Live will be back for you in January. Until then, from all of us at the Horse, we hope you have a great night. <laughs>